Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest Jonathan Gottman, partner and chair of Ackerman's Trusts and Estates Practice for part two of our discussion focused on the international trust space, including topics such as Jonathan's work with revising Nevis's trust laws, the United States as a tax and privacy haven, CRS and asset protection, and cryptocurrency. Welcome back to our podcast series. This is episode two uh, with my friend Jonathan Gottman. Uh, continuing uh, concepts that we were discussing in episode one. Uh, In this episode, we're going to touch on more aspects of asset protection and how modern trust laws have evolved to deal with issues in cryptocurrency and privacy concerns of international families coming to the United States. So enjoy episode two of my interview with Jonathan Gottman. Well, thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate the comments on uh, on, on the domestic side, but I, I really want to shift focus now because you know when we first met, one of the things that impressed me, um, in addition to how you were dressed, is the idea that you really were a prolific uh, a, a person in in around the, around the world. In fact, we did a world tour together, as I know you remember, all through Europe and London and and uh, in Switzerland, and and I saw firsthand, in fact, just just how how well known. I only it. remember I only remember about twenty five percent of that. Uh, <laughs> That's probably better. <laughs> you got more than I did. You got more than I did. Um, but uh, but the point is your 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 national well your international brand is is so powerful. And I wanted to talk about sort of the history of when when you jumped into the international space. And I really like you to comment because right when I met you, you either had just finished or were in the process of finishing rewriting the trust laws of Nevis and in fact sort of infusing a lot of these modern trust law concepts like the directed trust and and different things uh, along those lines and it was, I was so fascinated by that and I I was joking earlier in the in the in the, in the uh, podcast but you really did golf with the the prime minister or premier of Nevis and and they really did hire you to do some great work so first question is talk to me about how you jumped into the international space and why and then let's talk about your work in Nevis because it's very fascinating to me yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a quick uh, anecdote here too. Really, before we do, so I just got back from Europe. I was I was there for a month on business, probably my longest uh, trip overseas. And you know, as you probably know, because we're friends on Facebook, you probably saw enough uh, pictures to make you sick in the different countries. <laughs> we just wanted you to come. We wanted you to come home and stop posting pictures. Yeah, I know, I know. So, um, so you know, I, was, I came back, and my 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 uh, first thing my girlfriend says to me is, "You have no taste in clothes," and she. Uh, <laughs> She took me to Saks and then to a couple of other stores. And anyway, a few thousand dollars later, and I have a whole new wardrobe. So next time we can't wait, can't wait to see it. Next time we see each other. Uh, I just thought that was funny because you keep mentioning that. It's like, okay, I, I guess everyone thinks I got a, like a lousy taste in clothes. Not, not even, not okay. even. Uh, you get away, you get away with it because you're a brilliant lawyer. You can I, wear whatever you want as long as you have the answer. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Go ahead, so. Yeah, no. So she got me to the groomers, and you know, <laughs> so anyway. So anyway, um, getting getting back to uh, to your questions uh, on that. Yeah, I was fortunate enough. Uh, I've been involved in the legislative process uh, for a number of different states over the years. People have come to me and asked me to review proposed legislation um, <clears throat> for the various states. Uh, you know, just because of uh, 
of uh, contacts that I've made over the years and, uh, you know, the expertise that I have. Um, I've had some influence on, under Florida law, uh, and great influence under Delaware law as well. Um, and so you got some experience there on, you know, on, on, on the legislative process, which is pretty interesting. Uh, nothing is more interesting, though, than dealing with a small country in the politics there. <laughs> but um, uh, because of my, uh, I, I've done a tremendous amount of work uh, in Nevis and the Cook Islands and a number of other foreign jurisdictions over the decades. And so um, visited Nevis over the years and, you know, rec recognize the opportunities that, you know, just like South Carolina, South, South Dakota, I'm sorry, um, being a smaller state, um, you know, have, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, getting, um, you know, how important legislation can be uh, economically to these jurisdictions and to states, um, you know, as, as far as industry goes and, and economic growth. Um, I was asked by uh, individuals who uh, are live in Nevis and are, are part of its financial services industry and also by the government. I've, I've met and uh, become friends with uh, various people in government and in not just Nevis, but other places in the Caribbean over the decades. And so they approached me about assisting them with revising their trust laws. And um, and I, I've helped them on uh, on their banking legislation over the years. Uh, recently helped them uh, through my firm creating a um, ICO regulations and and um, and uh, and uh, you know regulations to have token offerings, secured token offerings, things like that. And uh, so they're going to be coming out with a code in that area. I've helped them with uh, uh, their uh, business law codes, including their LLC Act, through. Uh, other advisors that have been retained by the government. So the government asked me <clears throat> to assist them with their trust law, and it was an interesting process. And um, I was always intrigued uh, because this is where uh, the domestic jurisdictions have been far ahead of the offshore world with these uh, directed trust uh, codes and stuff. So one of the things that I wanted to do when they asked me to take on this project was to import the directed trust legislation into um, into uh, Nevis law, and there, you know, there's, there's been attempts to do that in other jurisdictions uh, outside of the United States, but not uh, not to the extent that we were able to do that in Nevis. Uh, and we basically did a, a rebrand or of the of the trust law. We, it had a very good trust law, um, and and basically you kind of you kind of understand the history of where these codes come from. If you do enough. Uh, enough research, you know that you know a lot of a lot of statutes are borrowed from one jurisdiction to the next, including in our states. <clears throat> Everything tends to look the same uh, because we're all trying to one up the next person, and, you know, kind of add to the to the body of law that's been uh, that's been created. So I um, borrowed statutes from the from the various states, um, and I and the Nevis trust law, the original trust law. Uh, passed back in the early 90s was taken from the Cook Islands Trust Law, which is a very good trust code uh, created by practitioners here in the United States as well. And um, I, I took that base that they had and uh, and moved to drastically improve it in many ways, uh, you know, in, in, uh, by adding the directed trust legislation. But also one, one of the things that, uh, and, and you can't get around this in the United States, but there are ways of freezing trust assets um, and uh, and impairing a trustee's ability, even with asset protection trusts, from making distributions while those court orders uh, 
are in place. And, you know, even a court in Delaware or South Dakota or a state that has asset protection legislation may still end up issuing these orders and stuff like that. So one of the things that we wanted to do, because that can be extremely disruptive um, in an asset protection trust and with the purposes of an asset protection trust, we wanted to attempt to deal with that, although it's not likely that that happens often uh, in the Cook Islands, it, it can. And so we thought that that was one way of potentially benefiting um, Nevis over the Cook Islands is we inserted a, a statute in our <clears throat> code in Nevis that uh, basically says you can't uh, you can't have what's called an, an a uh, Mareva injunction. So the assets of the trust can't be frozen for even for a short period. So you can't interfere with the trust, the administration of the trust. You can't, um, there's no Anton Pillar order. So there's no, there's no basic way to interfere with trust distributions, with the trustee's ability to act, uh, to continue to, uh, to invest the trust assets, to continue to make distributions. And I think that's a very important factor. So we, you know, that in of itself is adding the directed trust statutes and um, taking away the ability to have a court issue a Mareva injunction and interfere with the trust uh, were, were two very important aspects uh, uh, or uh, characteristics that we added into Nevis law. And, uh, but, but, it, but, it, but it certainly is an interesting process. It, 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 it becomes very political in many ways and not just dealing with the different parties uh, in, you know, in the financial services industry and in the government, but also in, you know, in a smaller jurisdiction um, or, or country like St. Kitts and Nevis, um, dealing with issues that come up with the, um, uh, you know, with, with international monetary authorities, with the FATF, with uh, with uh, FATCA, with uh, uh, with CRS, with uh, with the OECD, <laughs> you know, throwing out every initial that you can possibly hear. Of. <laughs> but you really, you really, no one, no one wants to be on anyone's gray list or blacklist. Um, and and so you know, all of these issues become very critical, and everything you do is scrutinized based on the potential of you know of getting that jurisdiction back on someone's you know blacklist or gray list. Which is not a good result, and can result in sanctions, and can result in you know in the ability of a uh, <clears throat> you know of a of a of a corresponding bank to de-risk, or a uh, or you know or or a or clearinghouse not dealing with a financial institution that deals with a trust company, you know things like that. So so all these things become very important, and uh, and you have to you, you you learn a lot more beyond a trust code <laughs> than uh, you know and, and on on how this works, and and you know it's the same thing with uh, with state legislation, um, you know, again, the one thing I like about South Dakota, just you know, getting back to the, the domestic side of it, is you have a, a group there because it's a smaller state that can act and react very quickly. And then, you know, if there's a problem that comes up after the fact, which which can happen, and you know, and, and they do, and we see that, you know, in case law, um, you know, like the the Alaska uh, case we had, where uh, you know, one of its provisions in its trust code, which is not dissimilar from provisions that appear in other asset protection trust codes in the in the domestically was declared unconstitutional but you know you have the ability once that happens or if you have a uh, an issue come up with a you know with a monetary authority to to go back and correct that statute very quickly as well mm -hmm. so i think that's very important so well you've mentioned lots of topics that i want to kind of drill drill down on but but generally you know as, as you've been doing this all these years I, so Jonathan, since we've become friends and started to do so much work together, there's no question that the dynamic and the international and domestic trust space has changed so much. And, and in fact, you know, you read in publications like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that the United States has ascended to becoming a, a tax haven and a privacy haven, 
which uh, in some circumstances I've said that and have have uh, created some controversy. But you know, the reality is whether we like it or not, that's that's how the United States has been perceived uh, because of various factors. Um, I'm thinking of CRS as being one of them, um, and uh, and the fact that the United States has not signed off on that. And so, you know, I'm very interested because I think among all the practitioners and advisors that we've worked with over the years, I think you're probably in the best position to comment on this evolution because you've built an entire practice working and, and playing in the international space all over the world. So I really would like to see what you think, uh, first of all, of, of really the, the observation of, of the United States being the tax and privacy haven now and, and the place to be and, and factors why you think that's the case and, um, and just general commentary about that. Sure. Okay. So I, I guess first, uh, you know, looking back, what many of us would, would refer to as the fake New York Times or failing New York Times and failing, uh, failing Washington Post. Uh, that's, that's an inside joke. With David. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to comment. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I've had this uh, ongoing argument with the, uh, I, I think in this particular case, the New York Times, uh, probably not intending to help the industry, but uh, published an article a few years ago um, that focused on and gave a lot and put uh, put in light a lot of the benefits of going to South Dakota and, and using a South Dakota dynasty trust. And uh, following that article, we we received a, a lot of inquiries from clients. Um, you know, talking to us about, uh, you know, uh, about South Dakota and saying it look, looks like an interesting jurisdiction. Some people had said, well, why didn't you bring this up before? And I said, well, we have for years, but you just, <laughs> now, now the New York Times, you know, writes, writes the article and you, and you, and, and you, and you want to focus on it. But um, we were telling you that years before the New York Times wrote the article, but, but um, I think um, I just like pet peeve in dealing with the New York Times and, and, uh, uh, you know, some of the tax articles and articles on trusts and articles on the bankruptcy legislation, bankruptcy reform uh, that it's published over the years. And, and, and you know, I use the word journalist and, you know, I kind of put in quotes here. Uh, oftentimes they leave a lot of issues out or don't adequately cover those issues or put the right, uh, you know, put down the right arguments on both sides uh, of the equation in dealing with uh, in dealing with some of the issues that they find important. Uh, and so you oftentimes you get a very slanted view uh, of potential new tax law or bankruptcy law or trust legislation through the eyes of a New York Times or a Washington Post or a reporter that doesn't adequately have a background uh, in that area. And I think that's very important to understand. It's unfortunate. and. Oftentimes, and, and, and again, I've, I've dealt with this through various channels, but they don't like to admit mistakes. They don't like to clarify <clears throat> points and once it goes in writing. But I think in this particular situation, whether it was intended or not, it gave um, a, a great deal of publicity to the state of South Dakota in, uh, in its dynasty trust structures and the benefits of going to South Dakota. So I, I think I want to back up real quick as we, we've been throwing out a lot of initials here, uh, you know, which we're very familiar with, but perhaps your listeners aren't. And uh, one of them is CRS, which you mentioned here, and that's called the Common Reporting Standard. Um, and the Common Reporting Standard is not something that applies to people in the United States. It may um, tangentially affect them, and in some cases it may more directly affect them. But basically what it is, it's a treaty through the OECD, which is the Organization of Economic Development uh, through the United Nations, um, and it's this initiative that's similar to an initiative that we have, but the United States is not a party to 
CRS. It has no plans on becoming a part of the CRS. It has its own version of it, which is a little bit more harsh than CRS. But the common reporting standard is basically a a um, a treaty or an agreement um, between governments that enables um, those governments to exchange tax information on accounts uh, through computer structures that have been created. Uh, you know, financial accounts, bank accounts. Um, uh, uh, brokerage accounts um, and all sorts of trusts, etc., um, where uh, governments, you know, can look into that database and see if their their uh, their local taxpayers have accounts in foreign jurisdictions and are reporting everything properly in their local jurisdictions. Uh, you know, if you have an account, if you live in in Mexico and you have an account, you know, in the Cayman Islands, um, you know, CRS uh, would demand that the Cayman Islands Bank or the Cayman Islands brokerage firm reports that, uh, you know, through uh, through the through the structures that have been created and implemented under this under the Common Reporting Standard Agreement. So that's very important to understand, and 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 that's a that that is a world platform that applies to every financial institution uh, or basically any any jurisdiction that's signed on to this treaty, and most have and. If they haven't, they're 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 getting to the point where where there will be substantial compliance among anywhere you'd want to go in the world uh, to place assets to open a bank account will 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 be in compliance with CRS uh, soon enough. And in the United States, we have what's called FATCA, which is a our own version of um, of CRS, but we have something that. Uh, that's you know CRS doesn't, and you know the the world basically we we have the reserve currency. Uh, we also have the New York Stock Exchange and the uh, and the Nasdaq, as well as other uh, smaller stock exchanges like the OTC uh, you know, domestically. And a lot of the world's financial transactions take place through these exchanges. Um, and so, with what what our government realized with FATCA, uh, all we had to do was go right to the source. So, if you wanted to, if you want to have a dollar account, you want to you want to wire dollars, you want to trade in dollars, you have to have a U.S. corresponding bank. So there's only, uh, you know, there's only a handful of corresponding banks uh, for the dollar. Um, and and also, if you want to go onto a, uh, an exchange here in the United States and trade securities and so forth and access our, our uh, you know, our stocks and bonds in our public markets, uh, you have to go through what's called a clearinghouse. And again, there's only a few clearinghouses. Um, and so every broker dealer, every bank, you know, in the world has to go through those two, uh, channels in order to access, uh, the dollars and access the U S markets. So basically what FATCA does is take advantage of that and has created a reporting system where if you live in a foreign country, if you, you know, and your banks and your financial institutions want to deal with the U S you have to submit to reporting under FATCA and everyone jumped on board to do that because again, you know, we control the reserve currency and, and so that's how we structure it. So one way or another, if you're a U.S. taxpayer and you have a foreign account, uh, if you're not reporting that account, um, FACA at least gives the U.S. government a significant increase in opportunity to detect that unreported account. Um, and uh, so that that's, that's what FATCA and CRS are about. And again, two different areas. And because, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, um, because CRS doesn't apply here in the United States and is not likely to apply, we're not likely to sign on to that or to change our position on FATCA anytime soon. Um, that gives people that are overseas the opportunity to come here to the United States. And again, as you pointed out, 
because of the way our tax laws are structured, and they're, and they're, and they're you know, not, not in every way, because there are things that, you know, don't make a whole lot of sense to us as planners. Uh, if you want to come in and, you know, and we want to, we want to um, invite foreign money to come in to invest in the United States, uh, you know, you got to be careful about getting caught here for different types of tax purposes, like estate and gift and GST tax purposes and stuff like that. But you can come in and create structures and avoid paying U.S. income tax on, um, you know, cash deposits on, uh, you know, on stocks and bonds that you purchase here uh, and uh, and in other ways. You can limit your 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 income tax exposure in a number of different ways here. Um, and so uh, people come here, they set up uh, trust structures and, and all sorts of accounts. And now one of the additional benefits of doing that, you know, South Dakota has always had good secrecy legislation, confidentiality legislation to the extent that you can be uh, non, uh, to the extent that you can be uh, secretive or, or, or provide for a heightened level of confidentiality in today's world. South Dakota also has the secret trust statute, which I think is very important as well as you don't find in, in many other jurisdictions. Um, and, um, you know, in, in, in that respect, uh, you can come and create a trust, uh, and take advantage of that and not have to worry about reporting or being reported, uh, CRS. So because of that, uh, you're actually seeing a number of foreign wealthy families that are moving trust structures that have been created in various places around the world in the, in the, in the traditional offshore jurisdictions. And they're migrating those trust structures here to the United States and to, and South Dakota happens to probably be the top jurisdiction in that regard, uh, receiving a lot of that foreign wealth. And I think you're going to continue to see that as, uh, as foreign, as wealthy foreign families seek to avoid, uh, reporting under, uh, under the CRS, uh, structure. But, and that's, that's great. That was excellent, um, breakdown. And I think relative to your practice though, I know a big, a big part of your practice for years was, was providing the, um, probably the most powerful asset protection solution offshore for folks. I know you and I have talked about it and debated that over the years. And I'm aware that in your view, you know, real, the most powerful asset protection again can only be, only be had uh, in an offshore jurisdiction. And then probably as a secondary option, domestic asset protection, although has maybe some pitfalls is, is a good second place solution. So because of CRS, I mean, how does that impact your thinking about asset protection? I'm sure your opinion hasn't changed, but I guess, are you using the United States more than you were before because of, because of CRS? Not, not for domestic clients. I still go offshore. There's nothing that FATCA or CRS has done to impede the ability of an American client. A a U.S. taxpayer from bringing assets offshore. And I, I still, firmly believe for a variety of reasons, and that belief's not going to change for 40 or 50 years or more. Uh, hopefully I'll still be around then, but uh, but uh, for a variety of technical reasons and practical reasons, that you're far better off going offshore and setting up your structures offshore initially. But I do a lot of international trust litigation. I'm brought in uh, because of my my uh, experience in dealing with Nevis because of my experience at cross-border, I'm oftentimes brought in as a consultant or advisor with cross-border trust litigation has nothing to do with the United States. And as you know, from a particular case you and I are working on right now, I'm actually quite comfortable bringing offshore asset protection trusts that involve non-U.S. persons. Mm -hmm. 
So um, uh, bringing that's those a, that's, from, that's a great distinction. I mean, I, I didn't think of that as that's, a, that's an excellent distinction. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and so and so we're we're in the process of doing that in one particular family with, with you, and there, you know, I, I don't mind the the litigation occurring here in the United States. I think it would be better for all parties involved, you know, including my my settler in that case, for any litigation to take place here in the United States, and. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll get a, we'll get a nice defined result there. And, uh, you know, again, these are old and cold trusts. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable that, that South Dakota, uh, and even a federal court, if the federal court's involved, uh, in that litigation is going to reach the right result, you know, based on South Dakota law. Right. No, that's excellent. And, you know, it's a topic you and I have debated, debated for years and, uh, I've learned a lot from you in terms of how to analyze some of these different asset protection um, solutions, uh, not only just in the United States, but around the world. You know, Jonathan, the last topic that I wanted to hit on uh, while we while we have you is is our sort of joint work together, uh, mostly your thinking, uh, but our joint work together on uh, in the in the cryptocurrency space. You know, it's uh, continues to be somewhat controversial. There are those who think eventually it's going to go away. I don't believe that. In fact, I think it's here to stay in some form or another. It might not be Bitcoin, but there's no doubt that that this is the blockchain technology is going to continue and and I don't want to get into the the technology around how it works because I'm still not sure that some of us some at, at age 46 I'm ever going to understand it but the, what I do need to understand and I think what we have come to understand is that there's a a tremendous planning need around cryptocurrency generally and I'm real proud of our joint work uh, together with a, with a mutual client uh, that, that sought us out. Uh, and I wanted to just have us touch on that before we close, because everything we've talked about relative to asset protection, privacy, modern trust laws, your work in the international space and the domestic space, it all kind of comes to almost a point of training our whole careers to being able to figure out how to apply all of this powerful planning into this brand new asset class. So I love your thoughts on it. I like your thoughts where you see it's go where you see it going. Uh, I, I think it's a tremendous need and opportunity for both both firms and and both uh, trust companies and accountants and attorneys to understand how to how to deal with this. So Jonathan, please give, give me your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's very interesting. I I, I think crypto, um, you know, ICOs, coin offerings. Uh, are here to stay. There, there's been a little bit of a die down in the coin offerings, uh, not as popular as they were a couple of years ago, but just like every other piece of technology, I think you'll see that uh, making a comeback in, uh, you know, in, in, in spades and just, it just, it, it will become, uh, it'll have its day again and again and again. But, but I do think, you know, it, it's, it's important because technology is moving so quickly. I, I think we're going to see this happen a few more times in our in our in our collective lives, probably a few more times over the next decade or so, where you see these new types of asset classes created uh, because of technology, technology that you and I can't even think about now. What's interesting about crypto um, right now, uh, it, it's an area that's moving and it's moving quickly. Uh, it's 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 also slowed down, so you're seeing a lot more thought process going in. Uh, to what's been created, what, what, uh, where the market has failed, and what uh, sources can try to do things better, you know, or 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 create improvements for what's existing out there. So it's it's an area that's moving very, very quickly. And I think in in creating trust structures that are dealing with 
uh, with this type of technology that's in it, whether it it be an, an interest in a in a um, in a blockchain company, a, fin, a fintech company, or you know interest in cryptocurrency, you have to design your trust structures to with 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 that change, that rapid change in mind. And the interesting thing about South Dakota is it gives you a great deal of flexibility. There may be things that we we're, we're doing with our trust today that we just can't anticipate, you know, the needs that will happen within four or five years or, or maybe a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, in this particular space. But I know South Dakota law, and I know we can build flexibility in the trust to deal with, with those particular issues. But um, what we're seeing right now, obviously, is, is a, a um, there is friction between this industry and the banks because the banks don't quite know where they fit in. And the banks, you know, obviously the traditional banking industries feel extremely threatened by this. There's a, you know, there's an ability to hold value without having those banks involved. And I think where you have that um, potential, the, the, the banks are trying to deal with that and say, well, we're not going to have traditional deposits anymore if this becomes mainstream. Uh, you know, how do we deal with that? How do we address it? And I, I think there's a concern right now. Some of the banks are saying, like JP Morgan, we're going to create our own cryptocurrency. Yeah, you know, let's see you do it as well as, you know, as some of these, you know, as some, as some of these other uh, other sources have. You know, they're they're probably not going to be able to do that as well. And they're not going to have the top talent in the area. The top talent, you know, is is somewhere else, making a lot of money in this space. The um, at the same time, you have some fairly big players now, like Facebook, who has said that you know it's going to introduce its own cryptocurrency, Libra, sometime next year. And what's interesting there is, you know, Facebook has over two billion users. And there was an article that was run that if Facebook, if those, if all of those users, or let's say a billion of them worldwide, decide to use that currency and make it mainstream, then you have a situation that will drastically disrupt the financial markets. And so that's kind of scary when you think about it, uh, just from a just from a more macro perspective, not with a, uh, you know, with trust law, you know, and and, and how are we going to, uh, you know, and we're, we're so far behind, you know, on our ability to regulate this space um, that it's kind of scary thinking about that. If Facebook comes out with that and it does rock the financial markets, how that will change the world and affect the value of currency and, you know, and things like that. So hopefully um, the management at Facebook is taking that into account because it has a tremendous amount of users in there. Again, if you have loyalty amongst those users and jumping onto that currency, there can be a significant change in the in the world markets. But go, going back, you know, again, um, we've taken a lot of time looking at this on on this particular client you alluded to, uh, and the different provisions that we we put into trusts here. The 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 thought process behind. You know, so, someone who, who actually has a lot of crypto and recognizes the issues involved when you hold millions of dollars of crypto, of a cryptocurrency. Um, you know, and, and again, this is such a different asset. And the fact that you can hold it, in, you know, in, in a treasure or hold it in a, uh, you know, on a uh, on a thumb drive, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, it, it changed. You can hold millions of dollars or billions of dollars on a, on a small thumb drive. And, you know, that, that creates all sorts of issues when, when you think about it, safety issues, personal safety issues, value issues, the ability to access that crypto if someone passes away and, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and just dealing with issues like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot we don't know in this area, but what we're trying to do with our trust structures is just address these issues as adequately as we can, adequately for the clients, making sure that we comply with what we're trying to accomplish under South Dakota law, uh, you know, from both an income tax perspective, from an asset protection perspective, from a trust law perspective. Uh, and also take into account the fact that this is an area that's going to change very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you have to take that into account. Well, and I'm proud of our, our collaboration in that, in that space. And in fact, I'm, I'm proud of our collaboration over the last many years, Jonathan. As, as we end, I want to I want to say that, um, you know, your, your friendship and your, your uh, belief in what we're doing together has been invaluable. Um, I've learned a lot from you, all joking aside, and we have a lot of fun when we're together, but, uh, but we do appreciate the support on virtually every level that you've given us from the very beginning. And uh, you being on the podcast, is, it makes so much sense to us um, to have you. I'd like to have you back uh, as, in, as we maybe drill down in some other areas of your expertise. So again, thank you for all you've done for Bridgeford and, and even for me, and, and thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, any other final, final words of wisdom before we, uh, we say goodbye? Um, I was thinking of something very smart to say, but, uh, I, 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 I have nothing. So, uh, if you're, if you're, if you're any of your listeners are connected to me on LinkedIn, I, I post some really great jokes there. So yes. just, uh, uh, and, uh, if, if, if you're not connected to me on LinkedIn, look, look me up and you can see all these great jokes I post every day. <laughs> it's worth it. He, it's worth it. I'm not sure how he, he can be the expert that he is and, and put so much on, on social media. But Jonathan, thank you again. Uh, this was fantastic. Very informative. And um, again, thank you for your friendship and support. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com. 